Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain. Each episode, we bring together leaders across the supply chain space to discuss the role of technology and business model innovation on the future of supply chain. The Future of Supply Chain podcast is presented by Dynamo. Dynamo is a pre-seed and seed stage supply chain investor. To learn more about Dynamo and this show, head over to www.dynamo.vc slash podcasts or subscribe on the platform of your choice. Now let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar. Hey, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Future of Supply Chain podcast. I'm your host, Santosh Sankar. And joining me today from Germany is Felix Klor, partner at HV Capital. Welcome, Felix. Thank you so much, Santosh. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. And while we share an investment in uh, Sender that we could talk about kind of later on in this episode, I'd love to just open up with giving our audience here uh, two to three minutes on HV Capital and what you and the team spend your time investing in over in Europe. Yes, super happy to. Um, I, I try to keep it short because I think there's a, very, a lot of interesting topics to talk about. So I'm a partner at HV Capital. We are a venture capital firm or VC firm that started um, 21 years ago now with, I think, a fairly simple thesis, at least simple in, in theory, uh, but harder in practice to find and back the, the best entrepreneurial teams in, in, in Europe and help them build lasting businesses. And I think we've been you know, lucky enough to work with some of the probably most successful European technology companies, such as Zalando, HelloFresh, Deliver Hero, and, and more recently, companies such as SumUp, Depop, Flixbus, or as, as you just recently said, uh, Sender. And, and typically, we, we like to invest early. So we join in, in the C stage or Series A stage of a company um, but have a strong kind of thesis and a strong interest in investing alongside the entire journey uh, of a company up until the, the hopefully good end being an, an IPO or, or a successful trade sale. And, and for that purpose, also recently entered a growth fund. And what's your background? What's your story? How did you ultimately make your way into VC and taking interest around opportunities in supply chain? Let, let, let me try to split it in, in, in two parts. So I think the first part on, on me personally, I've my academic background is in business and political science. And I've, as a, probably a lot of these days, started a company right out of university in, in the education technology space that was essentially trying to bring digital learning to universities in Europe and beyond, which uh, we, uh, so me and the team did for almost five years. We then sold to one of our competitors, which a year later got sold to a company uh, called Stepstone that's owned by, by Axel Springer. And I had, uh, I think, as every good business student at the time, gained you know some first exposure into the the, the wonderful world of VC, and I found it extremely fascinating. And then was given the opportunity to kind of make make the switch to the the other side of the table. I don't want to call it dark side. It's it's a lot of fun, <laughs> and I've been doing this now now four and a half years at HV. And and so that's the first part. And the, the second part. What, what sparked my interest in supply chain is it's an interesting question. So I think first and foremost, if you look at how we we, we find at HV, we find cases that we like. I think it's it's truly about the entrepreneurs first. You you get to meet them, you hear the story, you you try to share their vision, and I think you get extremely excited about it. So so I think that's a big part of the equation, and I think that's. Also, when we first get introduced to, to David from Sender and a couple of other folks from other companies, I think that's that's a, a chunk of the decision making. And then, at the other, uh, on the other hand, once you you dive deep 
I think it gets really intriguing because if you look at the successful companies in our portfolio, specifically those in kind of e-commerce and related areas, ultimately to us, what contributes to the success is really the logistics part, right? And I think for, on a more global scale, maybe Amazon is the easiest example to, to think about it because they've invested so much you know, time, energy, resources into kind of rethinking, redefining the supply chain. They've managed to kind of change consumer kind of experiences and, and thereby kind of adapt the, the expectation of the consumer. And I think that's nowadays extremely clear to essentially everyone in the industry. So there's a lot of kind of attention and awareness for kind of supply chain, which ultimately I think is the backbone of our economy has traditionally been maybe a bit more underappreciated, but I think these days with the likes of Amazon, but also kind of the COVID and, and all of the kind of macroeconomic irregularities these days, I think it's it's a truly exciting space and time to, to be in and invest in. So part of this episode is uh, a part of our European tour mini series and David at Sender was so generous in introducing us around this. I'd be interested kind of delving in to supply chain. What's your perspective on the broader European digital road freight industry? State of the union, if you would. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope I fulfill kind of the expectation of the question because it's a fairly broad broad kind of answer, I think. I'm trying to narrow it down. And, but, but first, let me you know also thank and, and, and give a shout out to David, who's not only introduced us, but also enabled us to kind of join the cap table of Sender a bit later after you joined. And it's been amazing to kind of witness their growth and, 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 and story. In, in terms of kind of European road freight, I think there's, to me, there's three things. First is that we are currently seeing this, this wave of consolidation across the industry. And I think we see both in terms of incumbent forwarders as well as digital forwarders, uh, where if you look back maybe three, four years ago, you had essentially in every European country, you had a handful, two to three kind of digital road freight forwarders, early teams that were seeing the opportunity and going after it. And I think today we, we see that most of these companies either have been consolidated or in the process of consolidation, which to us feels very natural. And it's not atypical if you look at a lot of the markets, not only kind of a European road freight, I think quick commerce, think mobility services and so forth, where you have this entrepreneurial phase. And then after two, three or four years in, into the making, I think you see some like form of very like reasonable consolidation. So that's first. Second is that I think it seems to me that there's a bit of a push from incumbent players. So think of the large, more traditional forwarders to essentially try to argue that there shouldn't be a distinction between digital and non-digital road freight forwarders. And, and the way I think about it, I, I can see the argument, but I think essentially the, the, the new school next-gen kind of forwarders have, have the ability to simply build up on a much more modern infrastructure technology stack, kind of both in terms of customer facing, so customer and carrier facing, but also internal technology. Whereas I think that the more old school forwarders simply have to deal with a lot of uh, legacy tech and technical debt. And I think kind of the investors of these new kind of uh, digital brokers very like heavily underwrite this thesis of investing upfront into R&D and investing upfront into kind of technology that brings efficiency. And so I think over time, this distinction between kind of digital versus non-digital will, will actually become, become a bit clearer uh, rather than converge. And, and I think third, which is maybe a bit stating the obvious, is that the European road freight industry is, is, has been and, and continues to be very heavily effect, uh, affected by 
a what's happening in, in the macroeconomic environment, but also kind of in terms of regulatory changes, everything from the mobility package to, to Brexit to the pandemic, obviously. And I think it's kind of both an opportunity for you know agile teams to to go after to go after it, but it's also I think a big challenge, and and a big big part of that challenge is or uh, has been for the last three to five years securing kind of carrier capacity because we are facing this massive shortage of truckers kind of across Europe, and so I I think ultimately the companies that will win somehow manage to be the partner of choice for carriers. And you raised a couple interesting points there that I'd love to um, double click on. And I think the point around consolidation is an interesting one. And I'd love your take on like part of what we uh, see around consolidation is also an ability to enter new markets a lot faster. And I think the, the one interesting thing around building a European business is that you have to deal with kind of country level borders, regulation, but languages, culture. And sometimes that could be a lot easier if you just end up acquiring leaders in different countries or, or markets. Do, do you tend to agree with that yeah. as a VC? Yeah, so I, I completely agree. And I think you've, you've summarized it very well. I think there's two kind of forces at hand. So one, more generally speaking, if you think about kind of what makes or breaks a marketplace is I think liquidity. And there's this chicken egg question on how, how do you build up liquidity? And so consolidation or M&A that's then powered by, by, by some form of technology layer to make it more efficient helps you to kind of accelerate the liquidity building. So that's, that's I think, one part. And then the second part that's a bit more specific uh, on Europe is that I think outside in, it's, it's Europe, but inside out, it's, it's all these different countries and all these different kind of, as you mentioned, cultural differences, language barriers, and, and so forth. So I think... Building a European winner at, on one hand is much more tricky, I, I think, than it would be, say, in, in China or in India or may, maybe in, in the US. But I think once you manage to do so, it's all the, it seems to me it's a bit harder to, to tackle as a challenger because essentially you can't just enter Europe. You have to kind of do it country by country in a smart way. And your statement around kind of legacy and, and I guess, startup or, or kind of new entrant, I think that's a, a really interesting comment. And I guess part of it is driven by just the simple fact that the legacy players now are, are realizing, I think especially through COVID, that they need to have a, a clearer vision around their technology investment and how that benefits their business. But equally, I think, especially in this sector, the thing we've found is that founders, as they look to scale, realize that there's some things that incumbents do or, or have to do in order to be successful that may not necessarily be purely technology related. And, and, and we tend to see that in, in, in the U.S. I'd be curious if you have any specific observations in Europe re related to that. Yes. And, and I think it's also like a topic that we probably could speak you know, in depth about. I think one of the most interesting kind of things we're currently seeing is how corporates and startups try to work together because there's so many different modes, right? If you think uh, about a strategic partnership, if you think about a joint venture, if you think about a strategic investment, at which stage you do that strategic investment. And I think if if companies in, a, in an early stage, uh, maybe not, but, but kind of post-series A as a company should a bit, 
able to leverage what the corporate bring to the can bring to the table in like some form of like reasonable and balanced way i think it can be a massive driver of, of value for, for kind of both sides um, but it needs to be done like properly and i think it's specifically in the logistics and supply chain industry i feel that's there's even more value than in, in maybe more traditional say consumer um companies um, or maybe enterprise SaaS companies and and because it's so much about the liquidity and and so i think this is like one of the things i together with the farmers we work with think a lot is kind of how can we and at what time do we leverage that that, that value in, in in what way going forward mm. so i want to kind of throw in a, a more lighthearted question here but david yeah. told me to ask about the negotiation uh, <laughs> when you were working on making the sender investment <laughs> yeah so i think the best way to put it is when when we ended negotiations David essentially apologized, but at the same time said, look, this was hard. I understand, but you can trust me that in every round that follows, we'll kind of get to the same outcome than, than we did with you. And I think that's, that has been true so far. So I, I don't at all want to complain, but we, we were having very, very intense discussions across all the dimensions that you would expect from kind of a series A deal whether it's what's the right amount of, of investment what's the valuation what are the rights and and so forth so it was it was very intense but i think one of the you know strength of david is he he builds that kind of personal relationship and and makes you understand why he's doing what and and i think in the end i'm i'm extremely happy to be on board and and it's been an amazing ride and and i think david is you know the team obviously they are one of the most, you know, talented and, and ambitious people I, I know and I have had the pleasure to work with. So I'm very psyched. <laughs> but remembering that time, uh, it felt a bit tricky. <laughs> I, I completely agree around kind of quality of team, ambition, ability yeah. to execute. And I'm going to ask you a question that, that I asked David a few weeks ago when he kicked off this miniseries. And we've seen the digital brokerage and forwarding models face criticism on a global basis, right? And what I've uh, come to rely on is navigate these critics around the similarities that freight has to asset management in the world of finance. Mm -hmm. And for our mm -hmm. listeners in, in that world, you accumulate assets and you charge a margin for manage, managing those assets. And the way I see mm -hmm. it in our world is you accumulate freight and you charge a margin. And where people oftentimes try to criticize these digital models is your margin's so small. And I mm -hmm. think over time, this freight accumulation play actually can yield yeah. substantial free cash flow. Yeah. And you really have operating leverage that incumbents don't have because of your technology. So actually, mm -hmm. it's okay to charge a small margin, but you have to be in it for the long run. What's your thinking around this? Do you agree? Do you disagree? So, so for, for, maybe uh, before I give you my take, let me let me comment on 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 what you said. The an, an analogy, I think it's very interesting. I I would probably add that if if you think of asset management, the margin that you charge is determined by how active you manage it, and how difficult it is to manage it. Right. So, the margin in in a venture capital fund may be different than the margin of say an, an ETF portfolio mm -hmm. on the public stock market. So, so I think that's a very interesting comparison. If you would like want to draw the picture a bit bigger, if you think of the different types of freight and, and the 
the difficulties nowadays that that customers have on on getting the the freight to the customer or, or wherever they need it. So so I think I generally agree. That said, I'm probably much more laid back on the criticism, uh, and I, I think that's that's for three reasons. And and one, the first one, I, I think has to do uh, with not so much kind of the the model itself, but the current kind of market environment. I I feel that to, kind of in today's kind of venture world. With the amount of capital inflow, there's a kind of significant concentration into or off capital into into single assets or areas, and I think that by nature exposes these models because the valuations fly high, that the media gets significant um, attention, and I think that's le- that's leading to kind of both excitement and and criticism. Kind of both are fair. I think you hear the one louder than the other, but I think if you look if you look back historically a bit. There's always been companies, specifically kind of marketplaces and consumer companies, that that face that question of can this ever become profitable? You know, can this ever be a sustainable business? And I think there's a, a lot of really interesting companies, but very successful companies, very sustainable companies that managed to show that. Yes, there's also companies that failed, but I think that's always going to be the case as we are in venture investments. And I think there's always that inherent level of risk. So that's that's maybe more of the the, the general note on the question, on on the more kind of specific model question. I think first there's a lot of companies in the space, more traditional forwarders in the different segments of of the industry, the freight industry, that have historically shown that you can run this business profitably, right? So to to me, there's no systemic reason why. Uh, companies that that use technology to on on one hand increase transparency and on the other hand try to reduce inefficiencies why they shouldn't be able to do so at scale and i think that that scale question to me is kind of the the logical answer to the question i think if you think about the dynamics of marketplaces specifically b2b marketplaces i think to build them up you need a liquidity and b you need to break into existing relations and I think one of the means to do so is to be competitive in pricing. If if you hold the the belief, which which is a belief we hold, that you can use the technology to you know either leverage operating efficiencies, which essentially to me to us means you are able to systemically offer a better price, or because you are able to offer a better service to the customer, you retain retain him in in an efficient and, and interesting way over time. So I think this kind of low margin in the beginning build up build up a, a large liquidity in the B2B marketplaces is is rather kind of part of a playbook for for building kind of global marketplaces more than anything else. I like those points. I like those points. So I'm gonna shift gears here and one of your other investments in the world of construction logistics, which we're uh, super interested in here at, at Dynamo is Shootflix, and I, yeah. I'd love for you to kind yeah. of tell us a, a bit about what the team's building there and what you're excited about. Yeah. So before I start, please take everything I say, you know, with a bit of a, a grain of salt because you we've led the Series A a year ago, and I'm I'm extremely bullish in the same <laughs> sense that I, I've been bullish on Sender. So I, you 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 can expect some fanboyish cheerleading behavior. So I hope you and and the listeners can can kind of contextualize that. Love it. But 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 seriously. Look, in, in a nutshell, Shootflix is, is building a marketplace that allows construction companies uh, to order what's called bulk construction materials. So think of sand, gra- uh, gravel, asphalt, and, and so forth, and have it delivered in the same way that you would today expect your food delivered when ordering from the likes of whatever you use, Deliveroo or Uber Eats or DoorDash. And so essentially, it's connecting these construction companies 
with the producers of bulk construction materials and the carriers who are you know responsible for transporting the bulk construction materials which i think is extremely exciting and there's a variety of reasons that i would like uh, want to briefly lay out so first and, and again i'm coming back to the initial point it's it's really the team uh, you have have christian hulsevik another one of those really difficult umlauts to pronounce uh, <laughs> in, in the german language he on the one hand, truly or has built global supply chains all his life. So he led the kind of US Avato business and then switched sides and ended kind of the, the global um, supply chain management for Microsoft out of Seattle. And on the other hand, him and, and his, his co-founder, Thomas Hagedorn, they kind of, they live, breathe and speak construction, right? And which, which I think is, is some sort of a unique combination. And, and to us, it was one of the really like, strong points why we did the investment. On the other hand, again, if, if you dive into the market of bulk construction materials, it's massive. It's extremely hard to spot, but it's massive. It's I think it's easier larger than the entire cap industry in Germany, to give you some reference. It's extremely fragmented on kind of both the demand and the supply side, where you have thousands of producers and carriers in Germany alone. And by definition, and, and you, you know this because you've been investing in kind of logistics companies all your life, is construction sites are not optimized by no means because they temporarily switch. If, if you, know, you know, if you optimize logistics or routes between say spot A and spot B and spot A and spot B is fixed for 20, 30 years, you tap into optimized kind of relations. If you have a construction site that's moving every whatever six months or that wears a new construction sites in the middle of nowhere, I think that's something that's, that's truly exciting. And then finally, compared to kind of other markets in the supply chain industry, uh, essentially in every, I think, mode of transportation, be it sea freight, air freight, or road freight, there is no kind of large scale competition. There is competition uh, on the local level, and there's, there's these traders that have been doing it regionally for, for years, but essentially there's no kind of Debeschenka or Kuhnenagel in the market for bulk construction materials. So the value proposition of optimizing the, the procurement and ordering of bio construction materials towards these large construction companies is extremely strong, at least in Germany and in Europe. I, I don't know so much about the US, which which I think if you take these points together, really hopefully gives some excuse to my to my cheerleading. Yep. No, and certainly appreciate your excitement for the business and and, and the founders. It should be no other way. But you know, I'm gonna kind of step into a question around in European supply chain, what is something or, or what are areas, dynamics people are not paying adequate attention to? And here in the U.S., I tend to say labor, and I talk about labor a lot in the last year. I'd be curious if there's something similar in Europe from your perspective. So so I, I would agree. I think labor is is underappreciated. And by, by labor, I mean essentially that the people on the ground doing the work and it reminds me a bit of kind of uh, there's a i don't know about us but there has been a huge discussion in, in, in germany and i think also the broader european ecosystem on the the role of of nurses in in the kind of the pandemic uh, but but i think it feels like we are doing too little to actually shine a spotlight on on the role of labor in these industries be it truck drivers be it construction site workers be it craftsmen so i think there's a there's a whole list of, of, of jobs and, and, and labor that I think deserve much more attention, deserve much more 
kind of technology deserve much more also kind of celebration almost uh, and i think that's that's underappreciated for sure i think also like one of the the things that specifically for kind of us investors coming in i'm speaking a lot of from from the us kind of investors perspective here is that, that, that as i said earlier and then you also pointed out europe is not just Europe, every country is different and there's so many differences also in terms of the culture, in terms of the characteristics of the industry, the fragmentation and so forth. So I think building kind of European leadership is, is, is a bit harder to do, but but we feel also really interesting once you've, you've managed to do so. Yep. Yep. Agreed. And I, I have a more fun question for you and I'll, I'll put it to you this way. If you had a million euro to invest in a single yeah. new opportunity area, so not a specific yeah. company, but, but but a broad area. What would that be and why? Okay, I, I will answer, uh, but then I also want your view on this, okay? Okay, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> so so what, I, what I said earlier is I, it's a bit tricky for me, honestly, because we like I, I personally generally think we are better kind of VCs if we follow the entrepreneurs. And I, I think if you have a, a, a great founding team, they can make or break an area essentially they can make an area that you weren't too excited about make seem sexy and, and the other way around so i think that's that's part of why i'm i don't feel super comfortable in making that 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 um, that bet essentially but i think because you've asked one of the things that i'm currently thinking a lot about is i think there's an opportunity for companies to kind of think api first and essentially try to build the glue for the different systems that are running kind of global supply chains. And I think that there's this kind of notion of hopefully at some point, everything will be standardized, the TMSs of this world, WMSs, and, and essentially the whole shipper software, carrier software, it's all going to be standardized. And, and maybe, and, and hopefully this will be the case at some point, but I think the these API-first companies, I think they will do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of truly bringing standardization to the industry. And, and I, I think that's one where, because of the patchwork that you're currently seeing in the industry across both shippers and carriers, uh, across all the different um, modes of transportation, I think I would be truly excited about. Yeah. So um, to, to hold up my end here, I, yeah. I, I, I 110% agree with you that it's all about the people. And when folks come visit us here at, at Dynamo and they're curious as to how VCs make decisions, we tend to tell them that there are five things that we focus on. Team, 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 market, and then team. <laughs> and they, they don't quite like that a lot, being an industry-focused fund, but there, there's some truth to that because we've certainly... I mean, if you, if, you, if you say this, you can't decline them, right? Right. <laughs> Afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it becomes very hard for, for yeah. sometimes people to hear, but what, what we ultimately look for is like, where's that founder market fit? is what we call it. And, and what are mm -hmm. those like advantaged insights or that aha that a team has to go mm -hmm. capture a, an opportunity? So I'll, I'll, I'll echo what you said and then kind of add the types of things right now that we're spending a lot of time trying to understand better and are getting excited about. We, we have a, a thesis, so to speak, around middleware and, and APIs that we really mm -hmm. like and, and we made some investments in and around backbone AI being one of note, but we've also spent a lot of time around sustainability. So thinking about what the greenhouse gas ledger looks like around supply chain 
And we think that mm-hmm. uh, there's enough complexity that there won't be necessarily a single player that wins, but actually there might be opportunities mm-hmm. throughout the supply chain in order to quantify and monitor your emissions relative to a carbon budget. So similar to how you think about managing dollars within a, an organization in a financial capacity. Mm-hmm. We're also very excited about opportunities related to insurance and supply chain. And you'll, you'll tend to hear mm-hmm. us say that we, we think insurance across supply chain is largely a racket. And we're at an inning where yeah. there's sufficient digitization where one can get more granular data to make better and more informed underwriting decisions and also be transparent about it. So those are uh, two areas that that we're excited about. But again, it requires the right leaders to to show up and be able to convince us that they're the ones that are going to turn it into a billion dollar. Yeah, I I would underwrite all of the three you've mentioned. (laughs) I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So the, the, the one question I have for you, Felix, as, as an investor is like, what are your thoughts just on the broader venture markets, especially uh, as it relates to Europe? And I think you, like most other VCs, would probably identify that it's been a really busy market. Valuations have gone up. Pace of activity has gone up since COVID. Yeah. And we didn't necessarily expect that when COVID started. Mm-hmm. So it's a great question. Maybe because I think most of the, 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 the listeners essentially know a lot about the market already. I think there's a lot of kind of obvious facts, as you mentioned, prices have gone up, pace has increased, there's new asset classes on the block, essentially making making our life more fun that are going into venture. So I think that's kind of stating the obvious. And, and, and I think the result of that is, to, to me, it feels like it's becoming a bit harder to navigate current kind of VC market. With that being said, I think it's also a fantastic time to be both kind of a VC and a founder. And, and maybe let me explain on, on kind of this navigation thing a bit. If if you if you look at it from a VC's perspective or from an investor's perspective, I think one of the like balancing things you have to do is kind of how do you balance diligence w- with momentum? And how do you weigh kind of fundamental questions and, and potential answers that you can get in which time frame? versus kind of the momentum of, of company fundraising be, because I, it feels easy, but it's extremely tricky because the momentum also for uh, companies today creates optionality because they can, you know, um, uh, attract talent, expand, potentially consolidate. So I think that's one of the things that, that, that we think a lot about how, how we find the right balance in terms of the, the market we're currently in. And then on the other side, which which is something I've, I've noticed, and I, I also would like, would love to get your input on, is the, for founders, it feels like it's even more tricky because, yes, it's a good time to be a founder, but because there's so much capital concentration in single assets, you read the news, you, you read the, your whatever you read, TechCrunch or Business Insider, whatever, the information, and you read these crazy rounds, these crazy valuations, you scroll through your LinkedIn, and you feel like, hey, if, if these people are raising at that price, I obviously also need to raise at, raise at that price. And I think a lot of founders nowadays that may may not sit on the hottest momentum deals whatsoever, I, I feel like they're kind of being let down a bit because the, the capital concentration actually offsets a lot of uh, this, hey, there's so much money in the market. And I, I, I don't want to complain for them. I think it's still a fantastic time to be a founder specifically particularly in the early days, building software, deploying software has never been more efficient and cheaper. But I think it's it's hard to not 
read news and and get distracted i feel and i would love to get your view on this yeah yeah i i think this is something founders obviously can have a hard time with and usually as we kind of take a step back it's being thoughtful as to just because others are raising or their headlines that a certain company is raising and you might have knowledge, private knowledge that the traction or, or, or revenues are either not as strong or, or, or maybe very strong mm-hmm. relative to what you're doing is to kind of take a step back and, and think through what is right for your business as a founder and where you want to see your vision go. And part of that yeah. is being thoughtful as to just because others are, are doing something doesn't necessarily mean we should because we're in a cycle right now and it might be advantageous to take capital right now, but you have to assume that cycles always normalize. And what does the world look like two years down the road? Maybe there's not as much capital willing to finance startups. Maybe that means that valuations come down. And are you going to still have a company that endures and has a, a durable advantage? And if you think so, and if you think that capital today could help accelerate that, or provide maybe even a, a cushion when things start to soften, that, that might make sense. But it, it involves, I think, some, some thought, talking to several people. And, and that's why it's always good to have several investors around the table to help you determine what the right path forward is. And it, it's very hard, but one shouldn't be distracted by it. Fundraising is, is the outcome of a good business. <laughs> it shouldn't be what a good business strives to do. Yeah, I, I generally agree. I think it's sometimes tough, but but I I, I completely agree. Yeah, on the fundamental notion. Yeah, and and there's there's nuance to it, right? Like I was in a conversation a few weeks ago around what do you do when your competitors are starting to raise, and where the conversation ultimately got is if your competitors are raising and capital is an important moat, you should probably raise too. Mm-hmm. So like things that are very hardware mm-hmm. intensive, perhaps R and D intensive. Those might be good examples of that. But again, that's why having some, some good advisors, investors around the table can, can help founders make better decisions. But with that, Felix, my last question here before we part, what's a single piece of advice you have for supply chain founders out there who might be listening? So I think one of the most interesting topics in supply chain these days is how do you work with your first set of customers and how do you balance that value you're getting out of it with kind of the shareholder base, the cap table that you're trying to build. And and, and I, I mentioned it earlier, I think there's a lot of value we feel that you can you can build by uh, you know building a building a shareholder base of you know potentially kind of strategic investors and 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 VCs and and have that had a like healthy balance. But it's it's extremely difficult because at certain points in time, one or the other might feel that they have more power or they bring more to the table. And I think, again, maybe this is not what you were expecting. I think there's a lot of like, get, get started. As you everything you said on when to raise around, what to focus on, build the right team, hire early and, and all of this. But I think in supply chain specifically, you have that characteristic that like very early on, you probably encounter like very large potential customers. And I think, a lot of them have acknowledged that technology plays a role. So a lot of them will try to kind of find a way to, to link uh, what they bring to the table to a form of, of, of shielding. And I think that's that's reasonable, but I think balancing it 
is 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 something you should be very careful about because I think it will kind of determine the long term success of your company. And there's very like like good examples of it, very like successful examples of it. But there's also obviously um, examples where one one or the other kind of outweighs and and thereby kind of reduces the the chances of the business going forward, at least from an investor's perspective. Yep. Yep. Well, with that, Felix, I appreciate you joining us here uh, on our European tour. And we've covered a lot of ground and excited to catch up here in uh, the new year and hopefully find more David, Nico, Juliuses to support. (laughs) I, I, I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five star review and tell us what you liked. And be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.